Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We continue to bring you members of our community whose lives have had twists and turns, ups and downs, that have brought them to this place and this time. My name is Marty Lockman, and I have the pleasure of sharing these stories with all of you as our members share their personal stories in their own words. These stories have been smart, educational, sometimes emotional, but always real. Just recently, we have had conversations with Debbie Frost, Ruin Krugel, Carl Williams, Shannon Nash, and Bob Hammer. These stories have been exceptional, and if you have not listened to them, they are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, along with 54 other Bighorn Podcasts. We also want to thank Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers that have been part of our community for almost 80 years, located with stores on El Paseo and the Jewel Box in the Bighorn Pro Shop. Bighorn Properties, who continue to reinvest in our community in a multitude of ways. But most of all, they are the preeminent authority on everything Bighorn. Don't trust one of your biggest assets with anyone else. Eisenhower Medical Center, who provides to you the most complete health care and wellness services, but also their 24-7 health care program is a model for the country. We appreciate their support of Bighorn and the entire desert community. Back Nine Greens, who makes works of art in your own backyard, led by Dominic Nappi, a member of our community. Please contact them to improve your short game and your home. Corliss Estate Wines, whose reputation for excellence is world-renowned, and you have the opportunity to enjoy their fine wines anytime in the steakhouse and the poorhouse. Thank you all for your support. Once again today, we present to you another member of our community whose accomplishments are many and personifies giving back in a big way. Ian Telfer has been a member of our community since 2000. He is British-born, a Canadian mining executive, entrepreneur, and former chairman of Gold Comp Incorporated. He is known for funding and leading other Canadian mining companies, including TVX Gold, Silver Wheaton Corporation, and Uranium One, as well as all of his philanthropic efforts. Ian, thank you so much for being here, and please tell us your story that begins in Oxford, England. Well, thank you, Marty. Uh, yes, I was born in Oxford just after the Second World War. My father was Scottish, uh, my mother was Canadian, and my father uh, grew up very modestly. And when the war started, uh, was an RAF pilot. I guess he was a pretty good pilot. They sent him to Canada to train Canadian pilots and they did most of that training in the prairies because of the clear skies. And while he was stationed in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, he got set up on a blind date with my mother, who was a school teacher there, and uh, ergo, that's how it all started. At the end of the war, he was sent back to uh, Great Britain, 
So they happened to be there when I came along. We lived in, in England for uh, a couple of years and then relocated to Moose Jaw so that my grandparents could see me. They could start a life in Canada. During that time, although you're an infant and, and a young person, when, how old were you when you first came to Canada? Two. That is a small person. Yeah. Your greatest recollections of your early life is the Canadian part of your journey. Correct. What was school like? What was your young life like? What stuff were you involved in? I ended up living in Moose Jaw for about five years, so very early part of my life. Started public school there. Of course, I had my grandparents out there, had cousins out there. You know, Saskatchewan is pretty cold in the winter. I certainly remember that and uh, learned how to skate and learned how to toboggan and uh, basically living in a very cold Canadian winter. And then when I was about seven years old, uh, the family moved to Toronto. So now you're in a metropolitan city. Correct. A financial capital of Canada. Correct. That offered a whole lot more opportunities. What were your parents involved in once you moved to Toronto? Uh, my father was an accountant, had got transferred from Moose Jaw to Toronto, so he was working there as an accountant for a meatpacking company, Swift, which a name known to many of our members, I'm sure. And uh, my mother was a school teacher. So we grew up in this sort of lower middle class suburb of Toronto, very happy house. I had a, a younger brother and a younger sister. And, you know, we went to school and went to church and we were in Boy Scouts and Cubs and all those kinds of things. It was a very idyllic, leave it to beaver type of growing up. It's interesting. We've had a similar upbringings among a number of our members, myself included, that we didn't want for anything. And everybody else in our community was the same kind of class. So it wasn't like people were competing. It was very much a sense of community. Exactly. And without the media and even in the early days, no television, you didn't know how other people lived. Everyone thought they were doing okay. There was less jealousy and less envy of, of other people. And so I went all through public school, all through high school. Then I went to the University of Toronto, and I was not a good student, not a scholar. It took me a couple extra years to get out of high school. I got to the University of Toronto, and then I started to see kids from different backgrounds and different upbringings and different economic classes, etc. I took a three-year degree there without distinction, when I graduated, I hadn't looked very hard for a job. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a degree in political science, which doesn't lead anywhere. So I stumbled around for about five years with different jobs. I sold life insurance and I sold pharmaceuticals and I sold university textbooks, having no success, having very little money. I was single at the time. It was the late 60s, so there were a lot of distractions. So that's how I started off. The era and your story almost feels, you get to feel lost. And you wonder, what does the future hold? Because it's a struggle. And so what changes? I've been asked, what was my main motivation? And my main motivation, it's not very laudable, but my main motivation was I really hated being poor. 
I was just tired of being broke all the time. I looked at where I had gone to school and what I was doing and how my other friends were all getting married and buying houses and having kids, and I was doing zero. So I thought, I better go back to school. I uh, wrote the GMATs to get into an MBA program. I applied to every business school in Canada and got turned down. It was August of 1973, I think. I was depressed and down, and I didn't like my job, and I didn't like my life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I got a phone call late in August, or maybe even early September, from the University of Ottawa. And they said, are you Ian Telfrey? Yeah. Are you still interested in coming here? Yeah. They said, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? Yes. So I went in. They said, look, you know, clearly somebody got into Harvard or somewhere better and wasn't going to show up. And so they had an opening. They said, but if we let you into this program, you've got the worst marks of anyone we've ever let into a graduate program. So we'll let you in on trial till Christmas. Don't embarrass us. I said, fine. That's what changed. As soon as I started taking those courses, they were about business, they were about economics, they were about things I could sort of understand and get excited about. That's what changed. Well, we talk about the twists and turns, and that's what most of these stories are about. But this is one singular moment in time yep. that changed the direction of your entire life. Totally. What were the things, first of all, you can either sit around and being a victim or you can get an opportunity and say, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to seize the moment. And then was it just about timing or did you finally find something that interested you and really motivated you with the idea that I need to make some money? This is a way out. Exactly. It was a combination of Yes, I was motivated to get some kind of career, but also, yes, yeah, studying the subjects I was studying was way more interesting to me than English literature or political science or history, the things I'd taken in high school and university. So it was a combination of the two. I just lit up and got excited and uh, uh, the rest, as they say, you know. So by Christmas, now you're out of probation, I assume. Yeah. And now you're on your way. And yep. so th that particular program lasted how long? And then what was the next step after that? When I went to get the MBA, I had this dream. I read a lot. I read Fortune and Forbes and The Economist and all this all the time, even though I didn't have a job where I could ever utilize it. And I'd read about all these many, many uh, CEOs in America that had started off as brand managers at Procter & Gamble or Colgate or Tide or something like that. And I thought, that'd be a great job. You know, they would take you in there and the way they described it, they put you in charge of Cool Whip and you would be looking at packaging, pricing, delivery, discounting, all those kinds of things with all the retailers around America, and you would learn how a business worked, and then you would get a bigger product and bigger product. So that was my dream, get an MBA, and then get a job as a product manager. So I get the MBA, back to your other reference, yeah, by Christmas, in the MBA program, um, I got a scholarship. I was doing so well. So obviously, I was on the right track. It comes to the, the second spring of my MBA, and University of Ottawa didn't have a super high-profile MBA program back then. 
And so I contacted all those consumer products companies and said, hey, I sold pharmaceuticals, like I'm, I can sell, I can do this, so now I got an MBA. So I got interviews with all of them. So I went to the interviews and I got two or three job offers, but the job was going to start off driving around to drugstores and making sure stuff is on the shelf and all that kind of thing. And I said, hey, like I'm, I'm 27. I mean, I'm way too old for that job. I mean, that's how you think. And I've already sold pharmaceuticals, so I don't want to do that job. They said, well, our chairman started calling on drugstores. Everybody starts calling on drugstores. I said, no, no, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I've been there, done that. So I talked to a few friends of mine and said, God, what am I going to do? I, I, you know, I have no money. I'm in debt now. And now I've got an MBA. And now I can't, I can't get the job I want or I can't get it the way I want it. And a couple of them said, well, we're going to get our CPAs. After an MBA, you've got a lot of credits. You get your CPA probably in a year and a half. And I thought, all right, fine. So that's what I went and did. So I joined an accounting firm, worked for a couple of years and got my CPA. And I did okay at that. Just as I wasn't a very good salesman, I wasn't that good an accountant either. I was okay, but I wasn't that good. And so I started thinking, I've, I've got to go do something else. I've got to go do something else. And then I got a phone call one day from a headhunter and some Canadian mining company was looking for an accountant. And it paid more than I was making. So I said, done. I'd never worked for a mining company. I'd never audited a mining company. I didn't know anything about mining, but I joined them. I started to get a little more traction. Things started to work out. As part of the process, one of the questions you often ask is, where did you get mentored or where did you discover something? While I was working at the first mining company, it was called Hudson Bay Mining, still in business in Canada. They decided to set up a strategic planning effort and they hired an American consultant from Chicago, and he came to Toronto, and I was basically his gopher. And for two years, we went around, and this mining company had oil and gas and coal, agricultural chemicals, copper and gold businesses all over North America. And for two years, we went around and went to every one of those businesses over and over and over, helped the managements to develop a strategic plan. So this was in the late 70s, early 80s, where strategic planning, at least in Canada, was still pretty new, and in mining didn't exist. That's where I learned everything that I learned. I learned it about studying all these businesses, watching what they were doing right or wrong, helping them write their plans. And then this mentor, this consultant from Chicago, he was so tough, so American. Canadian managers are a lot softer. American managers are a lot tougher. And he just beat me and beat me and beat me. I learned so much from him about how to get things done, how to set objectives, how to take responsibility. That's where I learned everything that I learned. And his being tough, how did you view it at the time? Now you view it and say, well, I thank goodness that I had this person that was tough on me because you learned every facet of the business. Yeah. This wasn't about you going into one department and learning something. You learned everything about the business. How did you view him, though, in the moment? Well, again, I needed a salary. I needed a job. I was learning a lot. I knew he was tough. If anyone ever works for a very tough boss, they always say to themselves, well, boy, when I'm the boss, I'll never act like that or I'll never treat people like that. So I did a lot of that. 
but I still learned so much from him. One of the main lessons I learned from him was, it's your responsibility. If you're in charge of any part of a project or anything, and it doesn't work, it's your fault. Don't say the guy below you didn't do it right, or the supplier didn't show up, or the light bulb in the projector broke. It's your responsibility. And that was the, probably one of the main lessons that I learned is anticipate whatever could go wrong and take steps to make sure it doesn't happen. But again, accountability. Absolutely. Is the... And responsibility. Okay, so now you've gone through this mentoring. Yeah. What's the next step for you in your career? I then get a phone call from someone in Toronto that I knew a little bit. And they had just gone on a trip to Brazil with some promoters and investors that were looking to start a mining company in Brazil to look at the gold rush that was going on down there. And on that trip, someone had said they're looking for a CFO, but it was a tiny little company. Somebody called me up and said, would I be interested in joining this junior mining company that was going to start exploring in Brazil? So I went and met these people. Again, they were all stockbrokers and investment bankers. They were doing financially way better than I was. The idea of going and working for them and helping put this company together, I got very interested in it. And so I, that's when I changed jobs. And one of the big incentives that they talked about was if I joined them, I was not only going to get a salary, but I was going to get options in the stock. I knew just enough about options to know that if your stock goes up, the options can have a lot of value and you can create some wealth. Because one thing you learn when you see chartered accountants or CPAs, they don't earn equity in anything in their whole career. A lot of them are finding out now when they're my age that that didn't work out that well. So I was interested in owning something. So I took the job, got my options. We set up this little company in Toronto. One of the stockbrokers went to Brazil and after a year and a half, it was pretty clear he didn't know what he was doing. So the board said to me, how'd you like to move to Brazil? And at that time, Nancy and I had been married a few years at that point, but we had a one-year-old. I came home and said, hey, you want to move to Brazil? Sure. So we moved to Brazil with our one-year-old son. Lived in Rio de Janeiro, learned how to speak Portuguese, traveled all over South America. And I was with that company for 10 years. And we built it up and built it up and built it up. And we were partners with Inco and with Anglo-American and Rio Tinto, all the world's mining companies. We were the Brazilian partner down there. I learned a lot in that as well. Well, another really pivotal moment, obviously. But also, Ian, you were open to the possibilities mm -hmm. and not afraid to take that leap. I think that's a lesson, too, to young people. Yep that you have to be open and you have to seize the moment, yep. if you will, because the risk is really worth the reward, obviously. This became a very lucrative situation for you, I would think, yep. along with another great learning experience. Incredible learning experience, exactly right. And so the company had success. We merged it with a couple of other small mining companies and built it up. Then when we were trying to close one of those mergers, while in Brazil, we adopted our second son down there. So we've got a Brazilian son, most lovely guy. We moved back to Toronto, closed that deal. Then I was sort of bored with that whole part of the process. 
started looking around for something else to do. I made a little bit of money, so, you know, I wasn't as broke as I had been when I started this journey. We ended up moving to Vancouver, and someone wanted me to run a mining company they were setting up in Venezuela. But I didn't have to live in Venezuela. As Nancy said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for another adventure, but I can't learn any more languages, you know. We didn't learn languages easily. We got by, but that was it. So we moved to Vancouver. We now have two sons. We were doing okay, and I started running this company in Venezuela. It did not work out well at all. Uh, the gold just wasn't there. There was gold on one side of us and on the other side of us, but not where we thought it was. When that didn't work out, I started looking around for other mining opportunities, and I found one in Papua New Guinea. We repurposed the company and got involved in a project in Papua New Guinea, so I've made many, many trips to Papua New Guinea, got to know all the people there, and that worked out pretty well for a while, and then in the late 90s, gold was going nowhere, and this project wasn't doing well. I was tired of the gold business, and nobody was interested in gold. So I sold all the assets, and I ended up with basically a shell with a little bit of money in it. So I set up an internet incubator, because the internet was in the news. That went along for about three years, and then that completely collapsed with the collapse of the internet boom. It went bankrupt. So now I was in Vancouver, unemployed, no income, my kids in private school, looking at what to do next. That was in 2000. We talk about the twists and turns, but we also talk about the ups and downs. Yep. And you have experienced your fair share. I have. Of ups and downs. Yep. Is this the nature of the business, Ian, that this happens? The mining business is very cyclical. And if you're starting junior companies, they're not all going to work. So yeah, it has its up and downs for sure, because it's so tied to the commodity price. One of the lessons I learned from my consultant friend was he decided that there was a group at Harvard that would study your business and then come and tell you how you could make your business better. And they gave the example of a pharmaceutical company. You want to increase sales. You can lower prices, you can increase advertising, you could hire more salesmen. You know, what's the best way to do it for a pharmaceutical company? So we brought these people in to look at a copper company. And so they studied all the statistics of our industry. And then they showed up in a room full of all the managers and senior people. He started off saying, well, gentlemen, we've never done this for a mining company before. And we're all thinking, all right, boy, are we ever clever. We're right at the front of the line. He said, I got to tell you, having looked at your business, there are easier ways to make a living. He said, there's five things you don't want in a business. Capital intensive, labor intensive, energy intensive, unionized, and an undifferentiated product. And that's mining. And he said, the only other industry that's as bad as this is airlines for the exact same reasons, labor, energy, capital, no differentiation, and the products are all the same. That's the mining business. It's a tough business. A lot of people do well in it over time, but it's a tough business. But perseverance is absolutely necessary, I would think. Yep. The other question I have for you, you mentioned that you did a lot of reading before. Does that continue to this day? Because you seem to also have been in tune with and understanding what opportunities were out there. And you get that from 
gaining information. Mm-hmm. To me, that's really important is a continued education, if you will, on the part of the individual. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I read a lot. I read a lot. I read 30 or 40 books a year. And I read all the business stories, whether it's the Netflix story or the Twitter story or the Amazon story or the my, I read them all. I have read them all. I love reading those books. And I'm looking for why did that work? Why didn't that work? What did they learn? What did what mistakes did they make? And I still read all those books, although I'm not in that stage of my life as much anymore. I'm a huge reader. Now these people have told you that you're probably not going to make a lot of money doing what you're doing. You don't agree with them, I assume. What's the next step? 2000, I'm broke, at home, unemployed. I put my house on the market, move into a rental. used to tell my friends, by doing that, I could keep my kids in private school. And as long as your kids are in private school, nobody knows you're broke. That's how that worked. And very shortly thereafter, a friend of mine in Vancouver, who I didn't know that well at the time, a guy named Frank Justra, who... Among the other things he did, he founded Lionsgate Entertainment. He and I were friends. We decided we got to form another gold mining company now because the price of gold is so low it has to go up. So we started this company in Vancouver in 2000, 2001. And eventually we grew it into the biggest gold mining company in the world. The market cap started off at $10 million. And at one point it hit $50 billion, you know, with the price of of gold, et cetera, going up. So that's where... Everything broke for me that time. Everything. Everything I looked at was a success. Everything we bought was a success. Every merger we did was a success. Another right place, right time. Absolutely. A little bit of luck. Yeah. But you're also prepared to take advantage of the opportunity. Sure. I mean, it's not just luck because it's still hard work and it's identifying the opportunity and making the most of it. So you're running these companies and becoming very successful. And in my experience, success breeds success. It can go the other way sometimes, but you've been through those downs. But now things are really moving in the right direction. No, it was an incredible experience. And people would say, wow, did you ever imagine? No, you never imagined. You never imagined. You would create something that was that big and that successful. So when we started it, we had six employees. And at the peak, we had 20,000 employees. And that's over about an 18-year period. It was incredible. And then as part of that, I became chairman of the World Gold Council. And then that's when the University of Ottawa had decided to name their business school, and they were looking for a gigantic donation. So I was able to do that. So now the business school that turned me down but gave me my break has got my name on it. So it's unreal journey, unreal, unexpected. Sometimes I would think you just got to pinch yourself oh. during that period of time and say, thank you, this is pretty cool. Exactly right. Oh, no, it was shocking. <laughs> shocking to me, but you should have seen my friends. I mean, they couldn't believe it, what, what was happening to me, you know. And you gave back, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In reading, you know, you've done a lot of philanthropic endeavors. Yeah. And that's important because you know how hard it is and you know how good it can get. You want to give back to your community and to the people that have helped you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, 
the other advantage I think I have had was my success came very late in life. Like a lot of successful entrepreneurs, lightning strikes when they're in their 20s. And a lot of them deal with it very well. Very few of them does lightning strike twice. But by having my success so late in life, I realize how happenstance it is and how circumstantial it is. I wasn't any smarter. I wasn't working any harder, but I just happened to hit the right place at the right time and it all worked out so well. I venture to say that you don't give yourself enough credit in all this because there has to be the ability to manage, the ability to learn how a business can sure. grow and all those things that were your decisions sure. along with the people that you surrounded yourself with. But again, there's credit that you deserve, but it is the right time. And my sense is be a sense of gratitude when you do it at this point in your life. Oh. We do things when we're young, oh, we just to kind of expect it. Okay, that's the way life is supposed to be. Yeah. You knew that wasn't the way life was supposed to be. Absolutely right. Yes, you are so grateful because you realize, as you say, different roads you could have taken. And at this point in my life, I finally took the absolute perfect road and it lasted for almost 20 years. And so, uh, yeah, you're so grateful. At what point do you say, okay, I've had a great ride. Now I'm either going to do something else or this is the right time to get out of the business. And mainly with all you had accomplished then, what was the next step in your life? Great question. So with that kind of success and profile, you get invited onto boards of directors of other companies, other industries. And being in the mining business, a lot of small mining companies are looking for help and looking for wisdom or whatever. I got involved in a few other companies. You know, you mentioned the uranium company. That was an incredible experience. That was mining uranium in Kazakhstan. I learned a lot, saw a lot. We ended up selling that company to the Russian government. But the other part of it was, I don't think I'm as driven as a lot of entrepreneurs. Like I tell my friends, I'm a lot lazier than you think. So I didn't need it. I didn't have to have it. Uh, it was great while it lasted and I'm benefiting from it for now and forever. So I went on a few boards. I helped out a few charities. I uh, gave away a little more money. And now I'm on a couple of boards, small companies, trying to help them out, enjoying my life and traveling. And well-deserved. As you look back, what would be the single greatest lesson that you learned from that part of your life? When I'm talking to students or young people or younger people, one of the things I say to them is, don't ignore your own gut. Because when you're young, you don't think you know anything. So you start taking advice from lawyers and accountants and in-laws and everybody else when you're making decisions. And yeah, that's okay. You should do that to get other opinions. But don't ignore your own gut feel. If your gut doesn't feel right about something, don't do it. And if you feel very strongly about something, pay attention to it. That'd be sort of my number one rule. And the other the other rule that I have when people are building a business or running a business is red flags never go down. And what I mean by that is if someone gets hired in your organization 
And even very early on, it just doesn't feel right. They do something a little bit strange or they dress a little bit weird or so. It can be anything very minor. Don't ignore that because red flags never go down. Biggest mistake a lot of business people make is they keep the wrong people for too long. They try to coach them and train them and send them to some, forget it. Just forget about it. If someone doesn't fit in right at the very beginning, do them and you a favor, move them on. Let them go find somewhere where they'll fit in better and you find a better person for you. So I my two rules. Trust your gut. Red flags never go down. Very rarely, do, if ever, you got to trust your instincts, as you said. Yeah. Very rarely do things change. Yeah. Dramatically. Yeah, exactly. Enough, not enough to make a difference. That's correct. What brought you to Bighorn? Because during that 2000 period that you were talking about, when things really started to take off, you came here. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, you know, we were living in Vancouver and we skied at Whistler with our kids and then our kids were not skiing as much, not into it as much. So we said, well, let's find somewhere in the South. And we had a lot of friends in Arizona and a lot of friends in the desert, or a few friends in the desert. So we came down to Palm Desert. When we lived in Brazil, we had a house in Naples. And so I'd been on a golf course community and I knew how it worked. And the one thing I learned from that golf course community was the wealthier people had to look at my crummy little house and the poorer people got to look at their great houses. And so we came down here. I went into a real estate agent's office and said, what are the three best clubs down here? And they said, the Vintage, the Reserve, and Bighorn. I said, okay, thank you. So we drove to each one, drove into the real estate office, didn't know anybody down here, didn't know anyone at Bighorn, just went to the real estate office, said, what's the cheapest house you got? Tony Lennon was on duty that day, showed us a house down here. And we just looked at the house, said, okay, we'll take it. And he said, oh, are you going to play the golf course or anything? I said, I'm not worried about the golf course. And that's how we got the Bighorn. Trust your instincts. Yep, exactly right. And I knew I wanted the best community I could find that I could afford the worst house in. And so that's how I got here. Well, I think, Ian, what I tell people about this place is there's a lot of developments but this is a community mm -hmm. where people actually live, they coexist, they have relationships. And quite often, after four or five years, especially if you have the opportunity to do this, the place that you are in the rest of the year is a place you go to, this becomes home. Exactly right. And we're in exactly that category. Our closest friends are now down here. And this is the, where we spend the most time out of the year. As Canadians, you know, we can only stay six months, so we do. Bighorns turned out to be beyond our wildest dreams. And we're now in our third house. You know, we've traded up a little along the way. And not a bad investment. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, exactly. What qualities do you look for in the people that work with you? Well, I think how people get along is as important as whatever their talent is to do the job. And so it's very important to me that people respect each other and take care of each other and hold each other responsible, but in a very nice way. I don't believe in hiring 
some mean person because they're very good at the job. I think that ruins the whole organization. So I think the culture in your company and having people that get along with each other is very critical. What is your management philosophy? Uh, my management philosophy is to give people all the responsibility they can handle, try to help them make decisions, try to assist them to do their job as well as they can. If it's the wrong person, deal with it quickly, not let it fester and sit there. So yeah, let people go as far as they can, as fast as they can, as high as they can, and realize their own dreams and their own satisfaction. Well, you also said early on, focus on their strengths, yes. not try to fix some weakness. Exactly right. Because you're wasting your time in most cases, and you're, you're not getting the true value of the person that you're with. Yep. And that's the same for everyone. Work on your strengths. If you're a young person or in school or in, new in a business, work on your strengths. Don't try to fix your weaknesses. It's a complete waste of time. How would you define leadership? Because we're looking at that not only in business, but in the world sure. right now. Wow. It's a nebulous concept for sure, especially in politics. But I define leadership as trying to set the right example. You always hear that the tone in a company comes from the top. And when I was working my way up through different companies, I never believed that. I thought, how can one person at the top influence the whole organization? But it's absolutely true. If the person at the top cuts corners, everybody cuts corners. I think to be a good leader, you've got to set the kind of example that other people can see and it's visible and then it'll permeate the whole organization. You can have an impact. Yes. We talked about what you would tell younger people. I got to ask, what advice would you give to you at the 20-year-old person that you were today? One of the things that I tell young people is early in their careers, if you're in a situation or in a job or in an organization and you're pushing on the door, but it's not opening, the person beside you got promoted and the person on the other side and you didn't go to another door. I think we sometimes emphasize with young people too much of stick to it, don't ever quit, show how tough you are, that's fine to a point. But I really believe that there are different avenues out there. And the secret to success, especially after what I went through was find the avenue that works for you. And don't waste too much time in a situation that you're not making any progress. That's what I would say. Something that would be of interest to me, certainly, but I think our listeners, since you've been so active in the mining industry, what's the future of the mining industry today? Great question. It's ironic that our society depends so much on things that are mined, all the metals and all the new components they need for their phones, etc. All of that has to be mined. But society does not like mining. It's disruptive. To get one ounce of gold, you rip up tons and tons of rock and crush it, and then you have to store it somewhere. So it's a very disruptive, very messy industry. And like a lot of industries in its history, it didn't do the best job of cleaning up after itself. And so this combination has put a lot of pressure on the industry to do better, which they're doing. 
but it's shrinking the places they are allowed to mine. So I think it's going to be a tough industry going forward. I think more and more substitutes will be found, whether it's substitutes for lithium for batteries or substitutes for iron ore for something else. It's always a tough business, but it's going to get tougher. Especially given the ups and downs. I'd like to know what people have influenced your life the most and also to kind of expound on what a strong support system within your personal life can do. Because when you have these ups and downs, you're not the only person that's going through this. Great questions. Well, I'll start with the support one first. Having a a close family around you, having been brought up in a close family, and then having my own close family around me, absolutely invaluable for getting through the ups and downs. I've been so lucky in that respect. The idea that you can meet someone when you're in your early 20s and still be together 50 years later is more luck than anything else in my view. So I feel very fortunate I've had that all throughout it. And again, traveling around and living in these different countries and learning the languages and having my financial ups and downs, lucky me. The most influential people in my life, well, I mentioned this consultant where I learned so much from him, but other leaders when I was in the accounting firm, there was a couple of people there that I really, really looked up to. The way they lived their lives, the way they gave back, the way they showed up at charity events and put their hand up and things like that. I mean, I learned a lot from those people. And I've done that, as you can imagine, a lot in my life. And then my own father, who was a lovely, lovely, talented accountant, fabulous Scotsman. He was probably the most important influence in my life. Ian, I really want to thank you for coming in and doing this. I believe this story epitomizes what we talk about in these podcasts all the time. The twists and turns, the ups and downs, perseverance. It's just inspirational. And so I thank you very much for coming in here and doing this. Thank you, Ian, for sharing your story. You are a very humble and private person. So telling us your story has been an honor. Your professional accomplishments are phenomenal, and your personal story and your philanthropic endeavors are inspirational. The podcasts are meant to be shared, and the impact they can have on others can be impactful, and your story is no exception. Thank you again to Leeds & Son, Bighorn Properties. No one knows Bighorn better. Eisenhower Medical Center, unparalleled access to medical care that enhances the entire desert community. Back Nine Greens, contact them to enhance your property. Corliss Estate Wines, enjoy their products. Let them know how much we appreciate their involvement in our community. Thanks for listening to the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We will have another great story very soon.